Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hello and welcome. I'm Suzanne Lynch, host of EU Confidential. Well, it's been a truly shocking week in the Middle East as Hamas launched an attack on Israel, killing more than 1,000 civilians and taking dozens of people hostage, including children. In this episode, we'll hear more about how the EU is responding to the Hamas attack on Israel and what it means for the bloc's Middle East policy. Also, we'll have the latest on a crucial election coming up this weekend in Poland. It's very important to go and vote. We need to fight for our freedom, uh, also reproductionary rights. We need the rule of law, pluralism in media. We need women to have a voice. But before we turn our attention to Poland, I'm joined by Barbara Munz, our chief EU correspondent here in Brussels, to discuss the latest on the EU response to the Hamas attack in Israel. Barbara, good to have you with us on the podcast. Hi, Suzanne. Look, you and I have been covering this story all week, this issue about how the EU has responded to these awful attacks that we saw in Israel at the weekend. Of course, it was condemned at the highest level, but... To say it has been something of a mismanagement when it comes to communications on the issue of Palestinian aid is an understatement. Bring us up to speed about what's been happening this week. It has been a very eventful week on the EU side, on the EU response as well. As you said, we had the condemnations throughout the weekend, but we already saw some some difference in responses, for example, from the European Commission and from the European Council side. And then on Monday, we had different responses when it comes to the question of aid. So we had the Hungarian Commissioner, Verheli, who said that the aid would be suspended immediately. And there was a lot of backlash against that, um, both from EU countries, but also within the Commission. And it led to a U-turn from the European Commission press services, who said late Monday evening that the aid would not be suspended, that humanitarian aid would continue, and that the other forms of development aid would be under review to make sure that there is no money whatsoever that could be potentially flowing to Hamas. Throughout the week, there was continued discussion on this, especially because it undermines the EU's credibility towards the region, potentially even putting the lives of EU diplomats in the region at risk. So it's not just, you know, an intra-EU exercise in navel-gazing and looking at the differences between um, European commissioners. It has a real impact on the way the world looks at the European response. 
Yeah, because we were here researching, I mean, the EU gives more Palestinian aid uh, than any other external body. And this comprises money to the Palestinian Authority, as well as for refugees, through UN agency, through NGOs. And it's always been a controversial issue because you had some more on the Israeli side who questioned the wisdom of this. And where was this money actually going? Was it maybe going to terrorists? But as you say there, this backlash against Farrelly's comments. Then we had Burrell, the EU high representative. He had already called a meeting of foreign ministers to take place on Tuesday, where they were supposed to discuss this. Then Farrelly had jumped the gun on Monday, and then they were scrambling to clarify, hang on, the money has not been cut. So at that uh, Tuesday meeting that was virtual, we did see pretty much, apart from a couple of voices, pretty much a consensus that the Palestinian aid had to keep flowing. Yeah, exactly. I think part of of that almost unity was also a reaction to the communication of the commission and they wanted to send a clear signal of we're continuing the humanitarian aid. Burrell in his press conference was also more nuanced than earlier statements that we saw so he obviously condemned the attacks by Hamas. All of them said what we have said in the communication. Condemnation of the terrorist attack, condemnation of uh, any attack against civilians, release of uh, hostages, protection of civilians, respect of international law, humanitarian law, and it means no blockage of water, food or electricity to a civil population in Gaza. But he also was very strong on the response of Israel and that they have to comply with international law, with humanitarian law. It is the, the fourth time in my life that I witnessed a war in Gaza, the bombing of Gaza and terrorist actions which are being retaliated by Israel on their right of defense. All ministers insisted on the idea that this has to be done according with international law, humanitarian law. So that was already a shift of tone towards uh, the statements from, from the weekend. I think, you know, taking a step back, you see that underlying there, this is just a very divisive issue within the EU. So between EU countries, also within the European Commission, and also between political parties. And that is something that when we look at the EU response in the coming days, but also weeks, um, we will continue to see those divisions and those tensions. Of course, questions about how much the upper echelons of the Commission knew about Farrelly's tweet. They say they weren't given any indication that it was coming. And of course, the position now is the EU has not suspended aid, but it is putting this aid under review. Another event this week in Brussels was, of course, the arrival of Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, to Brussels on Wednesday. This was a surprise. We did not expect this, but NATO defence ministers were meeting here during the week and Zelensky arrived to attend that meeting. Yes, exactly. So a surprise visit on, on Wednesday morning. Um, he also had some side visits combined with that with the NATO chief Stoltenberg, also with Belgian Prime Minister Alexander Deco, who had a press conference together with Zelensky announcing that Belgium will send F-16s in the end towards 2025, which uh, Ukraine has long been asking Belgium to do. There has been a lot of commentary about this during the week, during uh, the time since the invasion by Hamas about, you know, is Ukraine going to take a back seat now as the yeah. world's 
attention turns to Israel. So obviously an effort by Ukraine to, you know, to remind people it's still there, it still needs this help, etc. Even though Zelensky, when he did come here on Wednesday, you know, had some very powerful, uh, supportive messages uh, for Israel when he arrived at that NATO meeting. My recommendation to the leaders to go to Israel and I think to support people, just people. I'm not speaking about any institutions just to support people who've been under terroristic attacks, people who are dying now. It's very important. Barbara, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. And if you want to hear more on the ongoing situation in the Middle East, you can tune into our sister podcast, Power Play, where Anne McElvoy talks to Ron Prosser, the ambassador of Israel to Germany. And now let's turn to another important event occupying minds in Brussels, and that is this weekend's parliamentary election in Poland. So uh, you've come to the demonstration today, why? The government has changed so much in our country for worse. I cannot stand this. This this hurts me. In a few days you're turning 18. It's going to be the first time you vote. Do you think it's important? Yeah, I think it's very important because peace has destroyed the country democratically and is basically just forcing everybody in a dictatorship where you don't have free speech. I've come here because I think the time is short before the member states will decide to continue the union without members like Poland. I think it's not about Polexit, it's about Polkik. This is a real, a real possibility. Up to a million people recently took to the streets in the Polish capital of Warsaw in a demonstration led by Donald Tusk, the former Prime Minister and European Council Chief, who's now the leader of the Polish opposition. On the same day here in Brussels, as you just heard on the clip, demonstrators made their views clear on the Conservative government that has ruled Poland for eight years. During this time, relations between Warsaw and Brussels have frayed, as the Polish government has cracked down on the rule of law and judicial independence, as well as abortion rights and the free press. I can't stand really what's happening in Poland these days, that we are deprived of our basic rights, especially we as women. We cannot decide on our bodies. Some, Some men are deciding what we are to do with our uterus. We need the rule of law, pluralism in media. We need women to have a voice. So to bring us up to speed on what's been happening as the election enters its final few days, we're joined by Jan Czenski from Warsaw. Jan, good to have you with us. Thanks very much. Okay, so Jan, let's just start with the basics. Can you explain, I mean, who's running in this election and what's at stake? This is a very high stakes election. The current ruling party, Law and Justice, which is sort of a conservative nationalist party, is running for its third term in office. That's never happened in Poland's democratic history. So it's a big deal if they manage to win it. They are running against a fairly consolidated group of center, center-left parties led by an outfit called uh, Civic Platform, uh, which is headed by Donald Tusk, former prime minister and former European Council president. The really big stakes is Poland has, since law and justice came to power in 2015, has had a terrible relationship with the EU, thanks in large part to fairly radical judicial reforms that have made the judiciary brought it under much tighter political control and also brought parts of the media under tighter political control. Brussels feels this is violating the EU's democratic standards and so has cut off some funding going to Poland and has engaged in 
years of constant scraps and fights with Warsaw. The democratic opposition promises to reverse many of those changes and reduce the level of tension with Brussels, potentially releasing billions of euros in European funds and turning Poland back into a more mainstream European country and less one that's closely allied with uh, with Hungary in sort of pushing an illiberal democracy idea. So we've got these two kind of powerful figures, if you like, Kaczynski on one hand from the Law and Justice Party. Who seems to have been around for years. And Donald Tusk, who's also seemed to be around for years uh, leading the opposition. But there are also those smaller parties who are going to have quite an impact on government formation once the results are in. Yeah, looking at the opinion polls, law and justice is ahead. They're around 35, 36% in most opinion polls. Civic Platform or the broader grouping that Civic Platform is in charge of called Civic Coalition is at around 30%. So neither grouping is likely to win enough seats to take a majority on its own in parliament. That means they're going to have to try to cobble together a coalition with the three smaller parties that are likely to make it into the into the next parliament. So the uh, law and justice is probably going to take first place. The only potential coalition partner they have is a far-right party called Confederation. Confederation insists that they will not form a coalition with uh, law and justice. So that means if, if they actually don't play ball, then law and justice won't be able to form a government. On the opposition side, Civic Platform will be the largest uh, opposition grouping. It has already started talks with two other groupings, the Third Way, which is sort of a center, center-right, and with the Left, which is a left-wing social democratic grouping. And so these three parties have promised to govern together. There's a reasonable chance that they'll have enough seats to form a majority, but um, the vote is going to be incredibly tight. As the polls close on Sunday night, it's going to be very interesting to watch who's ahead, who's behind. One possible outcome is that nobody can form a coalition and you end up with several weeks of chaos and and a new election. Otherwise, you may have a weak law and justice government supported by a confederation or a very broad grouping of all the anti-peace so-called democratic parties that form a government. Peace is the Polish acronym for law and justice. So by any standards, it seems that this is a very, very divisive campaign. The country's obviously really divided politically and really kind of dirty dealings uh, when it comes to how this campaign has played out over the last few weeks. Yeah, um, the country did not used to be very divided ideologically. In the um, immediate aftermath of communism, you had a sort of a, a government created by the leftovers of the Solidarity Labour Union. Not long afterwards, you had the ex-communists uh, winning power. And so the people were able to sort of move fairly smoothly from right to left along the political spectrum. There have been a few incidents like the 2010 plane crash, which killed many senior officials and the, the Polish president which was turned by the right into sort of a totem of political identity, where what you thought about the plane crash. And especially since the 2015 election, Poland has become a very deeply divided society, kind of like the United States. And it breaks apart social bonds as well. I know friends who won't invite other friends because these friends support law and justice. And so we won't have them in, in our homes. So it's very, very deeply divided. And those divisions have come 
to the fore during the election campaign. You have about a third of the population which supports law and justice, a bit more than a third that supports the opposition, and about a third that's oblivious and is not going to take part in the election. And these divisions are on social issues, on you know whether you support gay rights or not, on the role of the Catholic Church. The, the, the people who like law and justice tend to be very favorable to a large role for the church. On abortion, the government has very tight abortion rules. The opposition wants to loosen them. On migration, everybody's a little a little skittish about migration, but law and justice is adamant that they do not want to have migrants, especially from Muslim, North African type countries. So across a whole host of issues, uh, the campaign very deeply divides people. And it's very unlikely that uh, whatever the result of the election, that there's going to be any sort of a kumbaya come together moment after the election. Obviously, of course, there is the irony there that as we covered a few weeks ago on the podcast, you had that scandal about bribery for visas, which implicated the current government. But Jan, thanks so much for joining us. We'll all be watching that closely over the weekend. Thank you. Thanks very much. We'll be back in just a few moments with a debate among members of the European Parliament to discuss further this weekend's election in Poland. Stay with us. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Now, I'm joined by two Polish members of the European Parliament to understand more what's at stake in this weekend's election. Firstly, we have Rosa Thun. She's from the Centrist Renew Europe group and a member of Poland's Third Way. That's a coalition of two smaller centrist parties who potentially will be a kingmaker in the election. Also joining us is Radek Sikorski from the EPP, that's the centre-right group in the European Parliament. He's a former foreign and defence minister of Poland and has been a a long-time, very prominent member of the Civic Platform Party, which is currently led by Donald Tusk. Rosa Thun, I'll start with you. I mean, what's at stake with this election this weekend? How significant is it? Well, since we are in Brussels, I would say um, that it's significant not only for us in Poland, but for Europe. We are the fifth, as far as size is concerned, fifth country in the European Union. And we should be, we were not over the last eight years, we should be 
one of those who creates this Europe. We cannot speak them, they, etc. about Europe. It's always us. So at stake is really the strength of the European Union. We need a government that will co-decide, come with uh, proposals, uh, try to find solutions, cooperate in the whole European Union. It's important to all of us. And of course, for Poland, it's crucial to come back on the path of democracy, of free economy as well, security, transparency. We want an honest government that really serves us and um, those who are around us. As you say there, that idea that Poland is part of the European Union, a very important part, a very big country, and yet we've seen a lot of rhetoric from Warsaw talking about Brussels as another, as, as a kind of an enemy, Brussels versus Warsaw. Radek Sikorski, what are your feeling coming into this election, in particular about what this means for Europe? Well, I'm here in Opole in southern Poland on the campaign trail, and uh, this election is above all about uh, Poland's democracy. The capture of the state by the ruling party is almost complete not just the security service, uh, prosecution service, but also state media, regional media, even the forestry service has been uh, politicized. And uh, Kaczynski says uh, quite openly, and I think um, uh, sincerely, that if he gains a third term, he will capture the last barricade, which is the independent courts. And then uh, you will have uh, a country that is not um, a democracy. And of course, a non-democracy, I don't believe, can stay in the European Union for for long. You have the same sort of anti-EU rhetoric as we were used to uh, in Britain from the Europhobes there. We've seen this movie before in Britain and we know how it ends. Do you mean there that it's a possibility that Poland could leave the European Union if it continues on its current path? Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that it's almost inevitable because uh, with this definition of sovereignty as the ability to sign treaties and then to break them when they don't suit you anymore, the European Union could not have been founded, Poland could not have entered it, and it cannot function in the long run. Rosatone, has something gone wrong here that, you know, Poland entered the European Union. There were big hopes in Brussels about the accession of these Central and Eastern European countries into the bloc. And yet now we see a huge division now between, and not all, but a big part of the electorate in Poland towards Europe. Is Brussels some have some of the blame here in terms of how it's dealt with Poland? It's difficult to criticise Brussels now because this is um, what the Polish government is doing nonstop. Uh, what we expect from Brussels is to stick to its line. And we have common rules. And we in Poland also want those common rules to be respected. This whole process, all those rules are so complicated enough to be too difficult to uh, go in depth or to understand in depth by uh, by many people. So, of course, this uh, populist propaganda that... Uh, pours out of uh, what was before public media and today uh, they are purely governing parties media, of course it influences people and they speak only nasty about the European Union. They keep on talking about us losing sovereignty, about us losing our possibilities to decide for ourselves or a possibility to organize ourselves, our country, etc., etc. About this Western Europe, you know, I have heard it in my youth under the communist rule about this um, West uh, being completely rotten 
rotten, immoral, etc. This same rhetoric we hear today, and of course I agree with Radek Sikorski that they are preparing a polexit. They will not manage because the opposition will win the elections. But the whole rhetoric, it all sounds like preparing the Polish population for a polexit. Mm. So this vote, this election that we will have on the 15th of October is completely crucial to us. We did approach MEPs, Polish politicians from other political parties in the European Parliament who did not were not available to come on the podcast. But Radek Sikorski, you're harshly critical of the ruling government at the moment, but they are obviously in some way connecting with a big part of the Polish population. Law and justice have pushed through uh, some laws, some changes that evidently have support from a, a huge chunk of the Polish population. Just like Brexit uh, had a huge support in Britain. And now there is uh, regret because um, many of the things that were said about the European Union turned out to be lies and the benefits have not materialized. And we have the same situation today. It's a test for us uh, as a nation. Um, As George Orwell said, if you vote for authoritarians, you don't become a victim, you are an accomplice. How do you feel coming into this election? We're just a couple of days away. Do you feel that the opposition might pull this off under Donald Tusk? Well, the opposition in uh, total have uh, many more votes than the ruling party. The ruling party gained power with 38% of the vote in 2015 by a fluke. And today polls 32-33% of the vote. That shouldn't give them a working majority. The great majority of the Polish people wants to stay in the EU and wants Poland to be an influential member of it. Mm. There are some technical mishaps if one of the parties didn't make it into parliament. So we need a bit of luck. If there was to be this coalition government, as you describe, I mean, what changes should we expect? We will stop breaking EU law. We will abide by the judgment of ECJ. We will thereby get the recovery fund and the uh, cohesion funds and bring Poland into the mainstream of, of the European Union. That's the easy part. The first word that our partners in the European would hear is we are back and we would come back to the table and discuss and negotiate and clarify issues. But also we would give back the public media to public. We would uh, really try to restore this public life and public trust. It looks like it will be a government from left to right to central right. But with all differences that we have in the programs, the main points are the same. Restoration of democracy, following the rule of law. And presumably, as Donald Tusk has said, that a new government would unlock that money that has been withheld by Brussels. All opposition parties say that, of course, with coming back on the path of democracy and rule of law, the money will be easily unlocked. Mm. I want to explain one point that I feel people in Western Europe don't realize. This business of the control of uh, public and even some private media by the uh, government. I think people have difficulty in believing that Goebbelsian propaganda is possible in an EU country. Imagine Politico being taken over by Breitbart. Imagine that on main evening news, Donald Tusk is portrayed every day, not as a Pole, not as a former Polish prime minister, but as a German. This is how a part of the Polish public is manipulated to hate the opposition. This has to end. This is un-European. 
Rosa Toon, you've experienced this as well, this kind of anti-German strain that has really emerged in this election. Yes, because of my name. And quite simply also because, of course, like Radek Sikorski, I'm in a different party, but we together struggle for the rule of law and we struggle for our strong position in the European Union. And this is called treachery. This is called German. My name sounds German. Um, so I'm a very good target. Uh, Germans the- and traitors, which on the grounds of traditional logic is actually impossible. Tell us, I mean, have you been singled out yourself for this, Rosatun? <laughs> Many times. My portrait was also hung on a gallow uh, in a public square in um, in Katowice. And, uh, but now recently even Mr. Kaczyński gave me or made the honour of of mocking my name twice during his speech, during a big convention with hundreds of people, and they find it extremely funny. But it also, it is to incite hatred. Those people who are in the opposition, like myself or Radek Sikorski, are treated or called by names, are not only being laughed at, but are being called traitors. And um, yeah, very often Germans. I'm a Russian stooge, which is quite amusing for anybody who knows me. Aren't you, uh, by a chance, also Jewish? Because this also is being used. I'm Judified by association with my wife. Ah, yeah, of course. This is what it is. Uh, so the enemies all around with the Czechs also we have problems. And uh, this government managed even to destroy the excellent relations with Ukraine, of course. Yeah. So what they managed is to split the Polish society where... I uh, again repeat what Radek has also said, vast majority wants to change the government, but they do all possible, like also in Hungary, and unfortunately, like Netanyahu has done in Israel and uh, Trump in the United States, divide the society and everybody around is an enemy. On that topic, uh, Radek Sikorsky, your former defense minister, this gap that seems to have opened up between Warsaw and Kiev over the last few weeks is really extraordinary to watch the controversy over the grain, the Ukrainian grain that had been coming in to the single market. How do you assess how the current government has handled Ukraine? And do you think there is a change in public opinion in Poland about uh, the Ukraine war? Well, look, this government has quarreled now with all of Poland's neighbours. Kaczynski conducts his foreign policy just like he conducts internal uh, politics. He tries to dominate everyone. And of course, uh, some neighbors don't um, wish to be dominated. But on Ukraine, uh, they mishandled the issue of the grain transit. The grain was supposed to get to Ukraine's traditional markets in Africa and Asia. And instead, it stayed in Poland. And Polish farmers are understandably angry. Poland should have done what Romania has done, which is to upgrade its um, agroport, its uh, storage and transit facilities and make money on that. And of course, We had a million Ukrainians before the war in Poland. Another million joined them. And it's a bit like Poles in Britain. You know, suddenly there's 10, 15 percent Polish minority in some English towns. Your facilities, your NHS was not prepared for that. And there is some resentment. And there are always uh, political entrepreneurs who take advantage of that. It's still overwhelmingly in Poland's interest for Ukraine to win and for Poland uh, to be a leader of the West and certainly of the European Union in helping Ukraine win. But Poland should also be drawing on EU funds to uh, strengthen its border uh, with Belarus to help the refugees um, settle down. 
But, you know, this government pounds uh, refugees from outside Europe and migrants, but brought in record numbers of uh, migrants into Poland from outside Europe in our thousand-year history. Mm. This is this hypocrisy. Radek, for bribes, for bribes. The bribes is a small part of the problem. They've brought in a quarter of a million people from outside Europe and that we're trying to bring in another 400,000. We covered the bribery mm. migration scandal on the podcast and I was speaking to a Polish journalist a few weeks ago and I made the point, has this not affected negatively the government and the polls? And they made the point, well, it hasn't really been covered that much in the media. Getting back to your earlier point about how media coverage of domestic issues is an issue in terms of transparency and having debates about real issues. We had this debate on state TV and the party hacks from state TV took more time than the, the politicians that were supposed to debate one another. Mm, I think that kind of symbolised for a lot of people the problems. And a lot of people would say the EU was too slow to recognise this. I know the EU is coming forward. Commissioner, you're over. We've had her on the podcast before with uh, new EU proposals on media freedom, etc. So let's see how those go. We shall see how it will be implemented. Radek Sikorsky, just coming back on the defence issue, I mean, I'd like to ask you just as we wrap up a couple of things. Are you concerned about uh, the US position in terms of further funding to Ukraine? And B, it's connected, but how do you characterise the recent awful developments that have happened last weekend? We spoke about them earlier in the podcast, the events in Israel. How is that going to feed in, do you think, to the issue of support for Ukraine, for example, and indeed EU policy on, on Israel? Well, first of all, Morawiecki's statement, which wasn't even true that Poland is stopping uh, arms transfers in uh, to Ukraine, was noticed in Congress. And the reaction well, was, well, if frontline Poland doesn't want to help Ukraine, why should we? There isn't yet a move to uh, stop the U.S. funding. Ukraine is simply a victim of the uh, budget uh, debate and stalemate in the U.S. Congress. But uh, the uh, Hamas uh, attack on Israel will distract U.S. attention and resources from Ukraine. Putin must be uh, must be taking heart from all this. Any final thoughts on that? I would say we must be more active as Europe. And that's also why it's so important to have uh, serious and cooperative governments in the member states, because we need a better uh, security policy. We need a European defense system. We need a European army and not to rely always on the United States. As long as we have Joe Biden, we can uh, sleep more or less uh, well. Uh, But uh, how long will it last? Broader debate is going on, of course, about the future of EU foreign policy and defence policy. Thank you both uh, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. That's all we have for you in this episode. Make sure you follow EU Confidential on your favourite app. And of course, we're always open to feedback and suggestions. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. Thank you to our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez, and Diona Sturis, our senior audio producer. See you next week.